The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 13th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. 200 Conservative Party MPs voted yesterday expressing confidence in Theresa May as their party leader. The result is that Mrs May continues as Prime Minister and travels today to Brussels to meet the leaders of the other 27 EU countries. While Mrs May soldiers on, yesterday's victory only came after she promised to step down before the next election. The Prime Minister, who was damaged before the vote, is in a precarious position today. 117 Tories voted against her. That's more than a third of the Conservative Party MPs who have not got confidence in her to find a solution to the Brexit deal opposition. Furthermore, nothing has changed, it seems, with Europe saying the deal cannot be renegotiated and there must be a back stop an insurance policy put in place for the island of Ireland's border. We're joined now by independent MEP Marion Harkin and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Before you reflect on what happened yesterday, perhaps you could outline for us what will happen today. Well, today, Theresa May, oh, good morning, Michael. Good morning to you, Marion. <laughs> to you and your listeners. Uh, today, Theresa May is uh, coming to Brussels and to the council meeting. Um, I think she will hope that she can get some language, as it were, that might soften this a little bit. But um, if you uh, look at what the three leaders, the president of the commission, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the council, that's the heads of state, Donald Tusk, and the chief parliament negotiator, uh, Giver Hofstad, said uh, the day before yesterday, they were all very clear the backstop is not for renegotiation and um, that they they are standing by Ireland. And if you look at what... Arlene Foster said, apparently to Mrs. Yes, Mrs. May yesterday, she's looking for a change to the legal text of the agreement, which will eliminate the backstop. Yes, that's what she's looking for, but she's not going to get it. I mean, they've all made it clear, uh, as I said the day before yesterday. And in many ways, Michael, I think um, that may have precipitated to some extent the vote of no confidence, because I think it finally, finally dawned on some of the more hardline Tories that this was it. And and I, I honestly believe the shock that they felt, how could this be happening to us? We who were one of the most influential, most powerful voices in the EU, now we have no influence against Little Ireland. And I think actually... That came as a real shock to some of them. And I think May herself and her negotiators know that, that yes, of course, they can negotiate. But when it comes to it, at the end of the day, there's a club of 27 and there's one. And if that club were to sacrifice one of its members, why then would any member have faith or trust in it? And I think that's mm. ha- that that shock really hit them so badly that it probably partly uh, precipitated the the vote of no confidence in her. 
Right, and what about the outcome of uh, that vote? Uh, she's won the day, but 117 Tories voting no confidence in Mrs May is quite significant. And I understand that there are many members in the Conservative Party who are not just surprised by that, but concerned by it. Yes, and I'm not surprised by that myself in the sense that, of course, they'd be concerned. But I, I think two things need to be said. Uh, Theresa May has said uh, last night that uh, she will not lead the party into the next uh, general election in 2022. Mm. Uh, she just wants to be the Brexit prime minister. Uh, I think she had to do that uh, because obviously there are a number of others waiting in the wings with their own political ambitions, wanting to lead the Tories. And I think this much must be said for her. She is the only British politician in this whole debacle that has pushed her country before her own political ambitions by saying she won't lead the Tory party into the next election. She has a job of work mm. to do. She wants to do it. Undoubtedly, she's proved her, her steel and uh, she's a warrior to contend with in political terms. Uh, but where do we go from here? What difference did yesterday make? Uh, because we still have uh, this conundrum and all of the conundrums attached to what politicians in the United Kingdom think is the right way forward uh, and none of them seem to match up. Mrs May is going out Uh, to find something that will appease them. That seems impossible. We've been talking through the possible scenarios uh, that may emanate uh, from uh, the uh, complete uh, chaos uh, that has ensued in the UK. The confidence vote was one of them. That's over and done with. Uh, But nothing else has changed, has it? No, I don't think anything else has changed. I mean, now I think her focus will be on trying to get some wording that, you know, might make it look better or whatever. But Mm. in my view, there isn't enough fudge in the whole world to sweeten this deal enough for some of those people who are rejecting it. And I think she will probably concentrate somewhat now on trying to split Labour and to get some of the Labour Party to support the deal. I think as of now... That is not all that likely, but she has a bit of time. This vote doesn't have to take place before the 21st of March. I mean, yeah, but as somebody said yesterday, I mean, what wording can possibly suffice? It's a little bit like taking out an insurance policy against a fire and saying that there won't be insurance in place if there is a fire. Exactly. Uh, by the way, I said the 21st of March. It's, of course, the 21st of January. Oh, that's the... That, that vote, yeah. That's the date that Westminster must yeah. vote on a, a deal and agree a deal, or else they're looking into a, a no-deal scenario. Yes. That's it. Mm. Exactly. It is exactly that. <laughs> that's a very good explanation, taking out an insurance policy against a fire. But if there is a fire, there'll be no insurance in place. Look, the deal is as it is. Uh, And I think it's not just May's deal that has the backstop. Any deal that the UK concludes with the EU has to contain the backstop. They know that now. She knows that now. And I think that will gradually sink into people over Christmas. She's given herself the time. Mm. People know that it's either that deal 
crash out or a second referendum. And there may be people who will make the judgment, we will take our chances and hopefully get a second referendum. There may be people who will be afraid to take that chance and perhaps think that this is, you know, they Mm. can live with it. Right now, I don't think uh, she will get her deal through, uh, but it's still a way to the 21st of January and she will do everything she can to mm. pull it out of the fire. I think as of now, it's, it's, it's burning. Do you believe, Marion Harkin, that this is uh, the beginning of, at uh, the end of uh, the Northern Ireland question? Because the problem the DUP have with uh, the deal is that it breaks up the union because Northern Ireland will leave... Uh, the European Union on a different basis than the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, the problem Mrs May has uh, with uh, not uh, having that deal in place uh, and going back to a hard border is that it may inspire people to look to a united Ireland. That's certainly part of the equation, Michael. And, you know, history is a strange thing. Who would ever have thought when the deal was signed uh, on the Irish border that within 100 years that would be the determining factor on Britain's future with the EU? Because that's the truth of it Mm. right now. You know, it's just when you think about that. But I mean, the question is, the Irish question, as it were, I I think to to... be fair, it's not for discussion right now, but it certainly is in the background. I think more needs to play out. Well, it's in the in foreground the- because Mrs May brought it to the foreground in her, her speech to Westminster the other day. Yes, she did. But sometimes, Michael, when a number of different things are happening, mm. um, things can get pushed into boxes where they shouldn't be. And I, I, my own personal view is that it's, it's not the time now. I'm not saying it won't be the time in three months or six months or a year or whatever. I think it's not the time now. Other things have to play out first and we have to see where this goes because that in itself, the, the question of a United mm. Ireland in its own right is hugely fraught. And it, um, what do you think of Sinn Féin's suggestion yesterday? Mary Lou Macdonald was asking the Taoiseach and leaders questions. If uh, there is a, a no deal, uh, does that not make uh, the case for a border poll? What's your view on that? I think it's too soon to ask that question. And I also think absolutely it's too soon for the Taoiseach to answer it. Because if he were to give any opinion on that it would be immediately used and grabbed on by those on both sides, but most likely by the Brexiteers, mm. as an example of Ireland and bad faith, etc., etc. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not saying it's not a question that's there. I'm saying, in my view, it's not a question that should be dealt with right now. I, I know why Mary Lou asked us. That's part of politics, or at least I think I know. But I also um, would uh, understand why no Taoiseach could give any kind of substantive answer to that right now, despite 
whatever he might think one way or the other. We cannot get these two things mixed up at this point, in my view. Uh, let me ask you uh, another stupid question. I'm sure at this stage you're sick of me asking you stupid questions or wish that you had the answer to them and that the questions weren't uh, as obvious, let alone stupid. But do you think that Mrs May can get a, a consensus? Uh, because uh, the margin of uh, the vote yesterday was very narrow uh, and uh, I'm reading Dennis Staunton in the Irish Times today and he's suggesting uh, that if 100 MPs had voiced no confidence in her under normal circumstances, uh, there'd be very serious questions about her leadership uh, uh, but they uh, were suggesting yesterday across the board that she could afford to lose 120 votes she lost 117 so she's there but only just there it would seem. Yeah well it's not a stupid question Michael it's the question everybody's asking and I suppose in a way nobody has the answer to um, because you know you you cannot know what will happen in Labour. Perhaps with 117 Conservatives voting against the Prime Minister, that might uh, get, you know, how would I put it, Labour might become more cohesive after that. They may or they may not, but there again is a month during which they can try and pull themselves together. I mean, yesterday morning in the House of Commons, uh, when May was debating on leaders' questions with Jeremy Corbyn, in my opinion, she was way ahead of him, very clear. And I think, you know, that would have rattled Labour to yeah. some extent. But last night's vote will have given them an impetus. And I think that given that situation and that 117 voted against her, my view is Theresa May cannot get that deal through. But Michael, a week is a long time mm, in politics. Of course, yeah. 24 hours is a long time in politics. We have to wait to see what happens, what she comes home with, mm. how the whole thing pans out over Christmas because people will be going back to their constituencies. A lot of them will be beginning to digest some very unpalatable truths. The fact is, this is Brexit. This is what Brexit means. Mm. And really, we don't know um, until they come back uh, how how they'll think about that. And I think that's probably the point. And, uh, you know, it's the point uh, in why I said the questions were stupid. I think sometimes the questions are stupid because I know when I ask them that nobody knows the answer to them. I'd rather go than go through the the list of stupid questions that follow the one that I I just put to you. Do you think, uh, instead of asking all of those questions uh, that uh, we're in the same position today, that it's possible that this deal will be agreed, that there will be no deal, a hard border, that there will be the possibility of a a general election and that there's also the possibility of a referendum? But the answer, nobody knows for sure. That is the answer. I think myself, her deal won't get through. Um, unless Labour splits and splits badly. And it could, but it's not maybe, it's certainly less than 50-50 that that will happen. You're then into the scenario of either a general election or a second referendum. And obviously they'll be coming, or she will be coming to Brussels asking for an extension because all of that uh, couldn't happen, as it were, 
in time for the withdrawal date. I think she will get an extension, but only until the European elections, maybe even the 1st of July. I'm not quite sure how that would work legally. But the, the next six months will determine Brexit, no Brexit, hard Brexit, soft Brexit, whatever it's going to be. This time next year, uh, I will be shocked, Michael, if we'll still be asking the same questions. Because um, while Europe has been, you know, happy to negotiate in good faith, etc., I would get a sense out here from talking to MEPs from countries that are far away from the Mm. UK, that, yes, they're horribly disappointed. They wish none of this had happened. But, but Europe is a big place. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of things we have to deal with, and Brexit is just one of them. Okay. So, we'll, I'm sorry. We'll leave it there for the moment, Marion, though, and thank you indeed for joining thanks, us here on the programme this morning. Marion Harkin, independent member of the European Parliament. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to the National Broadband Plan and uh, to the rollout of uh, the fibre cables, which would bring 542,000 premises in this country into the modern age. Uh, but we've been talking about it for so long that the cost has gone from about 500 million to possibly as much as 3 billion euro and we could be talking about it for so long that the technology could be obsolete. Vodafone is to trial the use of 5G, fifth generation mobile technology as a way of providing home broadband access in a, a trial to 20,000 premises in Roscommon, Gorey, Clonmel and Dungar. And we'll talk about this now with independent TD for Roscommon, Michael Fitzmorrison. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Are, are people locally excited about this? Well, I think we need to put things in context. First of all, um, we welcome anything Vodafone is doing. Um, I know it's in Sleeve Moray that the, in Roscommon that the first mast is being done. Now, my understanding is, Michael, um, that when they do the first trial in the different areas, that there will be probably 250 houses involved. Um, compare, you know, the figures you said there aren't the figures that I have, to be honest about it. Um, this is a trial that they are putting an antenna on a mass that already exists, um, and it will be, they expect to have it up and running in uh, the end of 2019. Now, Vodafone, my understanding is that 2,300 masks around the country, and they will be trying this once to see that this works. That's the first thing. Um, it will bring it's, it will bring uh, good broadband to, the, to those areas. But um, those are the figures that I have at the moment. Mm. Second of all, um, I think by their own admission, it would be complementary with, with other broadband. There's, you will still have um, the parts of the country that are, have no broadband or little broadband or that a, a provider is beaming it will be still in the same situation. And yes, you are right, the technology is evolving. But um, when you go 5G, um, the reality is that you're putting an awful lot more mass because obviously it's not able to go from one to the other as handy. Um, and uh, there needs to be joint up thinking with councils, land that's spare, mm. um, and the different bodies involved. But it's not going, in my opinion, uh, while, while it's welcome, and that no one says it's not welcome, any new thing is welcome, it is not going to be the magic bullet uh, over the next 
five years that's going to solve things in, in, in but, but but aren't they using this type of technology in other parts of the world and if you can get on the internet and do your business uh, without any delay in outer Mongolia, why can't you do it uh, in relatively uh, civilised parts of Ireland? Well, that's that's a good... Well, I think all parts of Ireland are civilised, to be, to be honest. I know, but I mean, uh, I, 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 mean come, I mean relative I come, to outer I Mongolia. I come from like, yeah. parts and I call it civilised. Oh, no, yeah, no, and I do as well, but I mean relative to outer Mongolia. Yeah, but the mm. problem is that there are still, even with all the different types of technology we have there at the moment, Michael, there is 540,000 houses without it. Mm. There is places like Dublin might have good broadband and there are places out the road in the commuter belt in Kildare and in other areas, that, and in your own the areas mm. that you're covering there, that have no broadband. Um, it's about investment, uh, first of all, in the infrastructure. Um, and unfortunately, um, it's, about, it's about pounds, shillings and pence. Mm. And when those providers, um, in fairness to private companies, a lot of them, when those providers um, have looked at trying to make pounds, shillings and pence uh, case stack up. Um, th- this is the reason why, because areas in Ireland, it's a lot of it uh, more rural, that they haven't decided to go down that route. And we cannot keep waiting, be it in Loud or be it in Galway or be it in Donegal or Kerry. We cannot keep waiting for uh, something to keep coming. Government has to get involved in it and get it delivered. And yeah, mm. in, and in fairness, to those providers, and you, they are very clear in this, and the service they provide is good, and they are doing their best. But they will always say that the systems that they are bringing in will be complementary to. And will that be the case, role. though? Will that be the case in five years? I mean, you're saying that the five G, if it works, will be complementary to the fibre cables rather than replacing the fibre cables. But yes, in, in my, five my, years from now, if you were to invest three billion in this technology, uh, would that not be the way forward? And we look back on what has become obsolete in the meantime and wonder well, why we ever thought of spending that money on. Well, it. first of all, um, if you listen to the announcements, there will be nothing up and running until the end of next year. Mm. Um, the, the figures that I've given you is the figures that I am relying on and I'm open to contradiction on Oh this. no, yeah, and I'm just but relying I, on reports uh, of 20,000 yeah, premises but, yeah, under but, this but, trial but, 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 but I, what I'm asking you is that rather than being 20,000 premises, if let's say the 250 houses in Roscommon could get on the internet uh, and do what you do where you have high speed broadband uh, uh, in exactly the same way, well why not look to it and say look, well, well can we roll yeah, this out pro- and the get problem, the 3 the billion that we're is, going to put into the cables? The problem is, Michael, this um, those providers, and rightly so, for their safety at uh, business, they have to make their business case. Where you have broadband already, they may be bringing that up from 30 to 100, right? Mm. But in the areas that haven't, it, um, they they won't at the moment, and for the next, it could be 10 years, it could be 15 years. We don't know. And rural Ireland cannot wait for that link. We need to be put on the same level playing field as any other place. And when they talk about it, and the words they use, it will be complimentary, which means that they will have it in areas, and that's great, and people will have a choice, but in the areas that are in the, the we, we call it the red areas mm. that have broadband at the moment, and um, we have to get solutions to it. We have to get solutions rapidly, and 
you talk about the price it may cost, and that's mm-hmm. up for debate at the moment, the yep, price it yep, may cost. Yep, yep. But what is it costing not to have it at the mm. moment? Yeah, just uh, uh, the reports that I've been reading is uh, they're talking about download speeds of up to 500, uh, just to mention that. Uh, yeah. But uh, we're, 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 we're not rolling out the National Broadband Plan for all of the reasons, and uh, I, I suppose uh, the... Uh, controversy continues uh, around that uh, and as you say the price has not been agreed because the contract has not been signed uh, for the 542,000 premises who are living in the dark ages. Uh, Is there much prospect of a hope in the immediate future? Well my understanding is this and look we have to go the same as you here at Michael in the media Mm. and uh, we talk to the minister on a regular basis that it's been evaluated now to be honest about it you nearly pull your hair out with the lint it's been evaluated my understanding is within the next few weeks, a decision is going to be made. Um, now, and I've said this to the minister, mm. that if a decision is made, that it's that in their view, it's over expensive. What's plan B? Yeah, what's that? Um, exactly. Yeah, and, sorry, you preempted my next question. Yeah, yeah, and mm. we need we need a plan B, and we're mm. waiting for the government to come back on that. But what they all they will say to us at the moment is that we are evaluating. Uh, the tinder that's in there at the moment, mm. and we're going rolling it out. And to be honest about it, if you got hit in the ground, if you got a contract signed, and, you know, there's parts of this, Michael, that people might laugh about and that they don't understand. If that contract was given out in January, you will have, the first thing you have to do, and people will say, oh, my God, I never thought of that. The first thing you have to do is cut the hedges under the wires mm. for where you're putting them. And now people would say, Jesus, what's that got to do with it? But that's the first part. And we have a window, and this is why I'm anxious that the contract to be given out rapid mm. uh, in the new year, if it's going to be given out, for the simple reason. We have a window from January into March, and then you cannot cut those hedges into next September. So you nearly lose a year again. And that's why it is of the utmost importance that they nail this once and for all in the coming week or two. Yeah, and um, that's that's if the bidder has the wherewithal to deliver the service well, as yeah, required. That, look at it. Well, I, I imagine when you're evaluating something yeah. that you will do that. But um, and in fairness, the wire it's putting up the you know it's it's generally there's one company around the country that does most of the putting up of the of the the cable right around the country and. You know, it's about rolling it, rolling mm. it out, and the more gangs you have at it, it's pretty achievable to do pretty quick if the will is there. Provided the wherewithal is there, as you say, that will be evaluated, and therein lies, I suppose, the next worry, because you've either got a worthwhile plan, or you've got a bad plan that you go along with, or you've no plan. Well, first of all, in fairness, the fibre optic, fibre to the home has worked anywhere it has, has, mm. has been so far, in fairness. And it has been a good success. And people talk about broadband, and you mentioned 500 there. Um, for the general person, um, the speeds, I think the EU is bringing in that there's going to be a, there's an EU directive that, you're going, that you'll need up to 30, right? Mm. And for the ordinary person in the ordinary house, that is plenty sufficient for that. There are businesses and places, yes, that need uh, at higher speeds than that to work successfully, especially people that dealing with companies uh, in different places. Mm. But it has proved itself anywhere it is is at the moment that it is a good service. So I don't think we can question that part of it. It's how quick we can get it around rural parts of Ireland that are starving for it. And indeed, there are places, Mm. 
you know, in rounds, when I talk about Kildare, when you, you're, you're not far from Dublin there. And there are parts in Loud that have absolutely no coverage. And this is what we need to do to have connectivity for all those areas as rapidly as possible. All right, I've got to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. Independent TD for Roscommon, Michael Fitzmaurice. Michael Reed on LMFM. Solidarity people before profit used uh, their private private members' uh, time in uh, the Dáil last night to bring forward an anti-evictions bill. It's uh, the second time uh, the grouping has brought forward such proposed legislation uh, before before the debate took place, it was raised during leaders' questions by Paul Murphy, TD, who asked uh, the Taoiseach about uh, the amount of government TDs who were also landlords and if that had an influence on how they voted. Paul Murphy is on the line now. And a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. The Taoiseach made uh, the point uh, that uh, the TDs know the distinction between their personal interest and their public interest. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, I think the fact that right, one in four TDs in the Dáil are landlords, and that is disproportionately the case, even higher than one in four amongst Fianna Fáil TDs and Fianna Gael TDs, um, is instructive. Um, it, it doesn't mean necessarily that the driving factor for each individual TD is, oh, how is this going to affect me as a landlord? It shows the fact that landlords are massively overrepresented in the Dáil. I mean, in society as a whole, I think 4% of people are landlords. In the Dáil, 25% of people are landlords. And it, it is linked to the fact that this government, but also Fianna Fáil, mm. represents the landlords as a class. And you the think that the Fine Gael TDs and Fianna Fáil TDs who are landlords want to throw people out willy-nilly so that they can increase rents, is it? I think very few landlords want to throw people out just willy-nilly, but I think they follow the logic of the market, and if the market will allow them to increase rent, and if the market means that they have to get their current tenants out Mm. in order to be able to increase rent, well, then a certain number of them will will do so. I mean, we're we're dealing with a case on North Circular Road Mm. where, I mean, actually there, there was a you know, kind of an argument between the landlord and the tenants. The tenants are being evicted supposedly for renovations. Yeah, and Mick Barry set out to na- name and shame the landlord uh, in uh, the debate on your bill last night uh, and I uh, was told that was inappropriate by the Cairn Corler. That's, that's true. Um, I mean, the, the landlord told the tenants, look, I think, you know, this is the best building I've ever had. You're all great tenants, etc. Mm. But the market dictates uh, the rent. And that's that's the logic of the thing. And that's why we, we need legislation to stop landlords kicking out tenants. Um, this isn't, I mean, I've seen some... But that's not legal, is it? I mean, you can't evict somebody because you want to bring somebody in and get more rent. You can't. But, but well. what you can do is um, you can evict someone because you say, well, we have to do substantial refurbishment. Yes, um, and, this, and, and this comes to the nub of uh, the issue because uh, the Taoiseach said yesterday, look, TDs don't vote because they want to throw people out of their homes. Uh, and he made the point that your bill was too extreme because you're suggesting that you just cannot evict people. The Taoiseach said it's brought forward its own legislation. And one of the things is a definition of what substantial uh, upgrading a, a, a building actually means. Yeah, and we have to, I mean, they they announced this yesterday in response to the leader's question under pressure of uh, our proposals. So we'll have to see what they 
propose and if, if it is in line with what they're saying well they will be supporting it and it'll be a small step in the right direction well it was but, brought to the cabinet on Tuesday wasn't it y- yes exactly mm. um, but if it doesn't ban people from being evicted on the grounds of sale um, or on the grounds of renovations well then we think it will be inadequate and the idea that it's it's too extreme I mean Say it's it's the case mm. that in the Netherlands, in Sweden, and in Germany, if you're a landlord and you want to sell your property, you, mm. you can do so, but you have to sell it with your tenants in situ, and that's what currently happens, say, in terms of commercial mm. tenants. But the Taoiseach was saying that you wouldn't get your house back, uh, no matter what the circumstances. Was well, Owen Murphy, uh, the Minister for Housing, in the debate last night was saying that there may be unintended consequences, and you may end up finding people are evicted because uh, now is the time to do it before the law is brought in. Yeah, they, they said. You know, two years ago when we brought this forward, there would be unintended consequences. But, I mean, when they rejected this two years ago, an earlier version of this bill, well, then there were consequences. Um, And according to the figures from, I think it's Focus, on the the grounds upon which evictions have taken place, a third of evictions that have taken Mm -hmm. place since then to now would not have taken place if our legislation had been uh, passed. Um, And so, that you know, this is simple about whether you say the rights of whether you increase the relative rights of tenants relative to landlords or you continue to allow the, the so-called market to rule, which has seen you know, rents increase by 30% since the government came to power, which has seen the number of tenants, private rented tenants, who are living in consistent poverty double over the past number of years, from one in 14 mm. to one in seven. Um, and you know, the government then, two years ago, said, oh, well, you'll, there'll be unintended consequences, we'll do our own thing, etc. But look, the crisis has gotten worse, continues to get worse. We do need radical action to redress the balance, imbalance of power that exists between landlords well, and Well, let's talk about the action that the government proposes uh, taking, because it introduced rent pressure zones, which put a, a cap of 4% on uh, the amount uh, that rents could be increased in in certain areas. Its new bill has four major provisions. One is the introduction of a rent register, so you can see what you're paying, what your neighbours are paying, and what the people, the tenants before you paid for that matter. There's also uh, an increase in the notice to quit period so that uh, you can't be moved out as quickly as you can at the moment. There'll be a legal definition of substantial renovation uh, so that the type of thing that's happening on the North Circular Road that you talk about cannot happen. Uh, And there'll be additional powers for the RTB uh, to enforce laws. Uh, And as we heard, that could result in criminal sanction and fines of up to €30,000 for landlords uh, who uh, break uh, the rent pressure zones. Uh, the Taoiseach asked you yesterday, will you support his bill? Assuming that that's what's in the bill, then yes, we will be supporting it. It's, it's a small step in the right direction. Like the, the increased notice periods will be welcome. We don't think they go far enough. They're about half of what the proposal in our bill was. But we'll be continuing to fight to say, for example, that in, in what they've talked about, it doesn't seem that they're dealing with the issue of sale of property. Uh, it doesn't seem as if they're dealing with the issue of where a landlord says, well, sorry, you have to go because I've got a family member moving in, which is widely abused. And we propose to deal with that, not by banning it, but by having, like in the Netherlands, a compensation scheme for tenants who are being turfed out on that ground to disincentivize the abuse of, of that. Um, just like all the previous measures that the government has announced, they, they, they will prove to be Inadequate. The housing crisis will prove to get will continue to get worse and worse and worse, as, as, as long as they just kind of let the market roll, don't interfere too much in the market. That's 
kind of the logic of what they were saying yesterday. Well, uh, I think I've outlined uh, the four changes uh, that they're proposing uh, and you're supporting them, uh, in principle at least. Yeah, that, that's, that's, I, I'm not sure what he was talking about, suggesting you won't support it. Anytime the government brings forward legislation that goes a small mm. step in the right direction, we, we've no problem supporting it. Obviously, the government never supports our legislation. That's fine, that's their but the, uh, prerogative. But, but, but the government has explained to you that uh, your legislation is too extreme. People wouldn't be able to sell their house uh, and uh, that they wouldn't be able to take their houses back to give uh, if uh, their children were going to college or something like that. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's inaccurate. I mean, they, they would be able to, but they would have to pay compensation to tenants uh, in order to avoid the abuse of that as a means of just getting your property back in order to give it out to another tenant and hike up the rents, as has been happening. I mean, this, this idea that proposals to give you know, significant rights to tenants in line with other European countries is, quote-unquote, too extreme, it's, it's ridiculous, you know, and, it, and it's part of a kind of narrative that exists that portrays us on the left as being, you know, extremists, when the, the reality is that the, the so-called centre, which is an extreme centre, is allowing an extreme situation to exist, where you have, you know, in reality over 10,000 people now uh, homeless, many people being evicted on a yearly basis, and the government basically saying, well, we can tinker around the edges, but there's nothing fundamental we can do. I mean, that's extreme. It's extreme if, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with a whole number of families in Tala, who are in transitional housing from homelessness. So they were homeless, they were living in hotels, they had the nightmare of that. They got into transitional housing where they have their own door, uh, and they're faced with eviction, potentially, back into homelessness. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sign of just how crazy the crisis has, has gone for people. All right, I have to leave it there. Undoubtedly, this is a discussion that will continue for a long time to come. But thank you for joining us uh, this morning. That's Solidarity TD for Dublin South West, Paul Murphy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Ross Leahy joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Ross. Good morning, Michael. Hi, how are you keeping? Um, we have got a massive response, and these are comments that are left over from yesterday uh, as well, in regards to your interview with Imelda Munster on the changing of and the name of Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Drada seems like it's a, quite a passionate subject and a, quite an emotive subject for people out there. Um, Charity called in to say that he'd have appreciated if you, Michael, had uh, given Imelda Munster a chance to speak at some point in the interview. She, um, he says, she barely got a, a word in edgeways. Um, he said that you shouted her down all the time. He asked what was the point of bringing her on if you weren't going to let her speak at all. And he says that it was one of the most ignorant, ignorant interviews he's ever heard. Gosh. Yeah, there you go. Continuing Mm. along in the same vein, um, Mm. Joe said that he has no interest in politics or Mm. um, or he has no opinion whatsoever really about the suggested name change. He just wanted to call in again to complain about your treatment of Imelda Munster. Mm -hmm. Um, He felt the interview was totally unfair and he says that you were unbelievably rude to Imelda by shouting her down all the time. Okay. I'll move off that briefly for a second. Charlie from Navin rang in in relation to uh, your words this morning with Marion Harkin. He says that he thinks Marion Harkin thinks that Ireland is a valued member of the EU, um, but he wouldn't be so overly confident and he thinks that the EU think we are not really of great importance. Okay, well, they have certainly put uh, the Irish question to the fore. We were promised at the outset of uh, the Brexit negotiations uh, that uh, Europe would stand behind us. And thus far, that has been the case. 
Moving back briefly to um, your interview with Imelda. Okay, uh, and we probably should uh, explain to people who weren't listening to us yesterday uh, as well that uh, Imelda Munster was one of uh, three TDs who raised uh, the issue of Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in the Dáil with uh, the Taoiseach Leo Radger. The general manager of uh, the Loudmead Hospitals has written to staff and suggested uh, that they choose one of three names uh, in terms of uh, the future for the hospital, that it would be changed from Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital to the Drogheda General Hospital or Drogheda University Hospital uh, and there is a third name which escapes me at the moment uh, that it is her intention to change it uh, and that they had until Friday of this week to respond and, and Melda Munster is one of those who opposed it as was Peter Fitzpatrick who raised it uh, as well in the doll as uh, Declan Brannock and the Taoiseach said yeah well you know maybe there's uh, an argument there for consulting with people uh, but it's really got nothing to do with the government uh, Melda Munster uh, issued a press release on foot of that, uh, which uh, seemed politically opportunistic to me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That was a point that I had put to her and that it was a populist position that she was taking because she was ignoring the people who had suffered in that hospital. And we went through uh, many of the issues that had taken place over the years and many of the things that had happened wrongdoing in the name of Our Lady of Lourdes with Melda Munster. And people then listening took different positions. And I think many of them, as you have been highlighting this morning, uh, were in favour of what Melda Munster was saying and very critical, not just of what I was saying, but uh, the way the interview was conducted. Yeah, well, you did get some support. Mary was in touch and she said she'd been a patient in Our Lady of Lords throughout the years. And she said that you spoke the absolute truth in the interview. Um, as well as that, Anna rang in to weigh, to weigh in on the subject. And um, she said um, she understood the, the point you're trying to make about the terrible atrocities at the hospital over the years. And she added that not everyone has the same association with the name that um, you do. She said most people know know the hospital simply as the Lords, not Our Lady of Lords, etc. So the majority of the public don't make that connection themselves. And that is absolutely true. And I think that is the point that I was making, that it's not something that should be looked at in uh, the very simplistic way of what the majority of people think. There's a small group of people who are very seriously damaged as a result of what happened to them in Our Lady of Lourdes in the name of Our Lady of Lourdes. People who have been physically destroyed, uh, people who have been mentally scarred, families that have been damaged uh, and who do not feel 
that they can speak about this today. And it was those people who I hope I was representing on the programme, a, a small group of people, a minority, uh, who not only uh, feel that the name should be changed, but have in the past asked that the photos of the nuns and the doctors who caused so much harm to them be removed from the walls of the hospital. And that is what has happened uh, over uh, the last couple of decades. Let's uh, talk about something else now, though, because uh, there is new drink driving legislation in place, which means uh, that if you're found to be marginally over the limit, you are automatically disqualified for a period of three months. This uh, may come into play over the Christmas period if you're thinking of going out to a Christmas party or if you've gone to a Christmas party and you're getting up the next morning and going to work for that matter. And Marie Kearns has been out and about in RD and she's been asking people what they think of this. Well, I think the new law is a good idea. I mean, there's been an awful lot of road tragedies. Everybody knows somebody that has passed away on the roads, whether it was through no fault of their own or themselves drinking. So I'm okay with the zero tolerance policy. Um, To be honest, every small town has a taxi in it. And um, if you can get a neighbour or your, even your babysitter to come up and pick you up or a taxi to bring you home, then just do it. It's not worth it. So be organised and plan in advance this Christmas. Exactly. And even if you're not organised, sure, ring your local taxi driver. They're small businesses too. They could do with your support. I think it should be, uh, everybody should be um, uh, careful on the roads this time of the year for coming up to Christmas. We don't want any more sadness on the road. There's too many being killed on the road. And you lost a brother yourself? Yes, yeah, crossing the road uh, years ago. But you're saying one of your biggest concerns is not so much drink driving, it's the mobiles? Yes, Yes, they don't even look where they're going. And this town is serious with traffic. I don't know what to do. Far too strict. A person with a pint or two in them is doing no harm whatsoever. And the, the guards surely know who is doing the harm and it's up to them to clear it out. It's killing the rural pub, people are saying. It's killing everybody. Because you come into a town here like RD where you can't get a taxi at night and if you have two pints, you can't drive home. Ridiculous. Would you take a chance? No. There's people sober driving up and down towns there on two wheels and the guards can do nothing on them. If they stop them, what can they do? If they have a pint in them, it's an excuse... And the people with a pint in them won't be driving up and down the town with two wheels. I think you definitely are not fit to drive if you have a drink. Shouldn't take the chance. That's it. It's just like this. I think, um, you know, I'd be afraid now even to take the glass of wine with the dinner. So you'd have no drink at all if you knew you were going to drive? Absolutely, Marie, no drink at all. No, absolutely. And do you think that people are more kind of responsible and more aware now? Absolutely, and it's only right too that people don't drink and drive. At the end of the day, if you're going out, you don't drink, and if you have to drive. So you'll be taking the safe option this Christmas? I will, surely. No, you shouldn't get into a car if you drink on your talk. So would you make plans going out? Yeah, yeah. What would you do? Well, either get a taxi or we would walk because we're in the town. You just don't know what would happen, and if you have drink in your system, then... Like, you're just not 100% when you're behind the wheel, so it's too much of a risk, wouldn't do it. Wouldn't go out too much, but if I was, I definitely would get a taxi or designated driver, yeah, definitely. It's not worth it. You never know what's going to happen, so yeah. 
So would you make plans when you go out? Absolutely. I'd make plans. Either be the designated driver or organise the designated driver, for sure. You know, if you take a drink and you're caught, say one drink with a dinner and you're, you know, you're caught, you're, you don't have your driving licence anymore and then that's fact basically, you know. So we don't want that, do we? <laughs> no, uh, I wouldn't uh, take a drink when I'm driving. I'll organise a taxi or, or organise a lift. So there's no reason for anybody to take that chance? No, because it's your livelihood when you're driving. You can cause a big bad accident or knock somebody, so be careful out there over Christmas period. Yeah, some interesting thoughts there from people in RD who took some time out to speak with Marie Kearns for us and uh, thanks to them for doing that. I see actually, Ross, uh, that somebody has texted in to say that they were breathalyzed at 9 o'clock in Lobenstown this morning. Uh, they didn't say as to whether they passed the test or not. Uh, I suppose uh, they'll keep that to themselves. Uh, what else have people been saying to you on the phones anyway? Yeah, Emma rang in to say um, fair play to Theresa May for surviving the confidence vote, but she said her political career couldn't possibly last much longer and survive something like a steering Brexit. Um, we have a call in um, in relation to the, the landlord issue. Uh, a listener said that the law is too skewed towards landlords and she was shocked to find out that so many TDs are landlords. She said, no wonder we have a homeless crisis. Um, weighing in on the other side of that, another caller said that everyone always overlooks the responsibilities of landlords and often the horrible situations they are faced with. They added that everyone just presumes that tenants are angels in these circumstances. And uh, coming back, I suppose, to um, kind of the mm. overriding factor, which was the Imelda Munster interview, um, Louise said she doesn't believe the idea of changing the name of Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Drada has any connection with easing the pain of those who were hurt by the actions of some at the hospital. Well, I'm told by some who were hurt by the actions uh, that were meted out on them that it does. Okay, well, she she says she doesn't think that has hmm. anything yeah, to do yeah. with removing well, the religious ethos. The people, the, the people who were hurt by it. Do you feel? Do believe that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I suppose overrides uh, mm. that one. But she she thinks the decision is all about accommodating and placating people in preparation for a, a secular Ireland. Mm. Is what? She, she oh, and and I I think there's a lot of truth in the latter part of uh, that comment. And uh, I was talking about it with Rhoda Mullen, who's an independent senator and very much uh, a pro life supporter and uh, somebody who opposed the abortion legislation, which has uh, now. Uh, all but past all stages of uh, the Oireachtas uh, that should be completed today and signed into law so that uh, terminations uh, will be available to women from January provided uh, that the service providers are in a position to do that. Uh, but uh, I was talking to him about Our, Our Lady of Lourdes abortion services uh, because uh, the Lourdes Hospital has a maternity unit uh, and of course that means uh, that abortion services will be available in Drogheda from January, possibly, uh, but certainly at some stage uh, they'll be available in Drogheda and what the medical missionaries of Mary would think of that. Uh, And he said, well, he wouldn't think that they'd be very keen on the idea that the hospital they named Our Lady of Lourdes uh, would be providing abortion services, let alone uh, that abortion services would be carried out in the name of Our Lady of Lourdes. And uh, I think that there's a a lot to do with that in terms of the decision to change the name. And I'm not sure that those who are advocating holding on to the name have spoken to the nuns or represent them for that matter. Yeah, that's very fair. Um, I was thinking uh, another, another comment Jimmy said, um, that 
a lot of people obviously just don't associate the lords with the nuns anymore. It's completely gone from their 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 mind frame, which I think. Okay, is. well, that's uh, those uh, who aren't uh, continuing uh, to remember. Uh, it's uh, very easy how people forget. But anyway, uh, I, I know that people are honest and sincere in what they're saying, and, uh, and we do welcome all of the comments. Thanks, uh, Ross, for bringing us uh, those thoughts on uh, the program today. And if you would like to add to what's been said, Ross is going to be at the end of the phone. If you do call us, and our telephone number is eighteen fifty seven one five nine five. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, apparently our listener who was breathalyzed this morning did actually pass uh, the test uh, and we all uh, sighed uh, with great relief uh, to get uh, the follow-up text and thanks uh, for letting us know. Let's uh, go to Michael Brennan, though, who's political editor with uh, the Sunday Business Post to talk uh, about uh, the big political story across Europe uh, today and indeed what might have changed in the last 24 hours. Good morning to you, Michael, and thanks for joining us yesterday morning. Theresa May was uh, the leader of uh, the Conservative Party and the British Prime Minister. She had a Brexit withdrawal deal which was impossible to get voted through Parliament. Today Theresa May is the leader of the Conservative Party and the British Prime Minister and she's uh, a Brexit withdrawal deal which the European Union says cannot be renegotiated. What has changed? I think, Michael, there was a great uh, description of it last night listening to BBC News. One of the reporters said what happened yesterday was a bit like a, a chaotic detour on a, on a car chase uh, in a film where the car goes to the barn and the chickens get uh, put up in the air and then the car goes back on the road and, and everything is the same as it was. So we, I suppose the wor- most worrying thing from yesterday is um, that you had 117 Conservative MPs in Theresa May's own party who voted against her and wanted to get rid of her. Those are the same people, the exact same people who are going to be voting against the withdrawal deal when she brings it into Parliament again in the new year. So that is the unfortunate reality. Un- unless they blink, we're, we're going to be in big trouble and looking, looking for other ways out. Uh, and possibly more than people would have anticipated who have voiced no confidence in her. Yeah, there have been a lot of sort of mockery of the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg's in the the sort of hard Brexiteer wing of the Conservative Party, people saying that uh, he was all talk and no action and they couldn't even get the 48 signatures they needed to kick off a leadership contest. And obviously that more than doubled then when it came to the final vote. But it, it probably explains why Theresa May made her very you know, in retrospect, unwise move to go for a general election before that she knew she had this rump of of conservative Eurosceptic MPs over a third of her party and she wants to try and get a bigger majority that she could get a deal through Parliament even with them there and obviously we're, we're now in the mess we're in. And Jacob Rees-Mogg has uh, described the result of the confidence vote as a a terrible result. Uh, I I think even he is suggesting it it would have been better had she won more assertively. Yeah, the the amazing thing about his logic, though, as as people have been pointing out, is that he believes that this uh, 66% majority vote for Theresa May in yesterday's contest uh, you know, robs her of her legitimacy and therefore she must go. But whenever people mention uh, 52% for leave in Britain, 48% remain, mm. let's have a second vote, they say that's outrageous, that's anti-democratic. <laughs> so mm. you can see the, the gap in the logic there, you know. So yeah. but they're, they're just going to keep agitating and so on. Mm. Um, I, I think, Michael, I'd put it as, as the British in the position 
definition of the spoiled child or certainly the, the people in the Conservative Party. They've been told no repeatedly by the EU. You cannot have your cake and eat it. You can leave if you like, but it is going to cause huge economic damage to you and your, your neighbour, which is us. Um, but they keep demanding you know, that they, they want to be allowed to go out and play and they, they just uh, are not willing to listen to, to that message. But they're running out of time and, and let's hope they, they do finally get the message in the next couple of months before mm. it's too late. I wonder, though, if he does have a, a point. Uh, Rhys Mogg logic uh, is uh, sometimes... Uh just beyond most of us. Uh, but he, he did make an interesting point yesterday because uh, the Tories have a, around uh, 300 MPs, 317 MPs or, or thereabouts. And uh, I suppose like uh, Fine Gael or the main party in government, a lot of them have a job. They're either ministers or they have other jobs uh, and turkeys don't vote for Christmas uh, so that if they were to vote a- against their leader, they could lose their job. And he said that left about 160 or 170 Tories who don't have a, a job, and 117 of those voted against Mrs. May. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know there's there's a there's certainly a logic to that, and and we see it in government here that you know if if you have a job as a cabinet minister or a minister of state, you might be inclined to be more <laughs> loyal to the government than if you're languishing on the the back benches. Mm. Although there's very few of those in Fine Gael at the moment, which mm. is amazing. There's very few backbenchers <laughs> as as it stands. But you know, I think the difficulty is, Michael, you know, you're still in a stalemate after yesterday. Theresa May, you know, in fairness to her, has survived and has come through another gruelling ordeal. But we, we just need, I suppose, some sign that, that, that people are willing to accept what's on offer. Because you'll see from Brussels later on today at the summit of EU leaders, they're not going to uh, they're not going to change in any mm. radical way. When you see Angela Merkel telling the European Parliament that the deal is the deal, well, you can take it. That is the the genu- the the real EU position. They're not going to be deviating from that. And the next deadline is the twenty first of January. Uh, we've had a, a lot of deadlines that have been missed and pushed out. Uh, I take it that deadline it, it stands a, a very serious chance of being pushed out now at this stage. It does, yes. I suppose perhaps the, the, one of the positives this week is the, the ruling of the European Court of Justice, the EU's effectively legal court, mm. to say that Britain can revoke its decision to leave the European Union on its own. It doesn't need any permission from all the other EU member states. Or pause it. Or pause it. So mm. it, it has those two options to avert the, the disaster on March 29th, that they would march out into the abyss with no mm. deal um, and bring us with them. So those at least give some options. But the uncertainty is, is, is very damaging for everyone. I know even talking to you know, some people involved here in business, they, they, you know, they say there's no planning they can do because if they ask any suppliers about supplies from Britain, they simply cannot answer them because they don't know what's going to happen. So I, I think you know, the, the sooner we do get a resolution and a positive one, the better, because they, you, know, you can only keep extending and pretending for so long. But if they leave on the 29th of March, uh, that will be because they'll have voted before the 21st of uh, January, just to explain what that deadline was. Uh, but uh, as uh, I'm saying to you, uh, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Uh, is uh, that the case with uh, the backbenchers in the Irish government? Uh, not many of them in Fine Gael, but maybe you could uh, conclude that the backbenchers are on uh, the Fianna Fáil seats. Uh, and Fianna Fáil has uh, signed up to uh, another year uh, in facilitating uh, the government under the Confidence and Supply Agreement. 
Yeah, um, I, I think it's, look, at it's, it's something that, that certainly was on the cards for quite a while because Fianna Fáil leader Michal Martin had shown no inclination to suddenly pull the plug and declare that the, the current minority government was, was over and he wasn't supporting any longer. I think he's a fair point in, in arguing that we need stability at the moment. You can see what's happening in Britain. The notion of us having a general election and perhaps taking another two or three months to form a government in the middle of that definitely wouldn't be helpful. But I think we'll still have to be on our guard in 2019 next year because a lot of people still think if the government gets to the summer, uh, it, will, it will then start to look at what's going to, when's the election going to be because it's still going to be very difficult next year to pass another budget, a fourth budget under this minority government. And I, I think all the parties, they, they will, they're now looking at an election beyond the local elections in May and, and the European elections in May. But I think after that, then you'll hear the usual drum roll about uh, an election. Yeah, and given uh, the turmoil that Brexit is causing, I, I think most people will be relieved to some degree uh, that there is some stability here. But what about uh, within the ranks of Fianna Fáil? Uh, will there be rebels? I, I think, you know, there, there, there are people in Fianna Fáil who would not be great fans of Michal Martin's leadership. You, you, know, you know, you would know the obvious people, the likes of John McGuinness and, and Eamon O'Keeve and others. Mm-hmm. But at the, at the moment, Michal Martin seems to be holding the majority of the Fianna Fáil backbenchers with them. They're not exactly thrilled about their situation. They don't like seeing Taoiseach Leo Radker and his ministers getting to do lots of, of media opportunities and, and being kept in power by them. But they, they don't see a, a huge opportunity. And a lot of the first-time TDs, are, they're, glad to be, they're glad to be having their seat and so on. They, they certainly uh, want to bed in a bit more. So I, I think he'll manage to hold the party with him. But, you know, it's, it's a, tricky, a tricky balancing act for him. Mm. Uh, and what do you think it'll mean for Fianna Fáil's future prospects? I, I think in Fianna Fáil, and particularly when Michael Martin does, the, there's that old phrase of the long, the long game in that they believe and they've believed for a long time. The longer they hang in there, the less of a sheen there is to Leo Radker's leadership and people will see through the, the social media videos and the, the promises and, and start to ask, why is the, the housing crisis not recovering? Why is the health service not getting better in, in, in a visible way? So I think, I think that's part of it, that they, they feel the longer he continues in office, the more people will see him as he really is, as they, as they believe. And I, I think that's part of it, is to effectively wait and hope that he trips himself up and, and that they can capitalise on that. All right, Michael, thanks for joining us as always. Michael Brennan, political editor with the Sunday Business Post. Call Call Michael now, 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's uh, talk about uh, climate change, although there's uh, little change in uh, this country, uh, the worst country in Europe in tackling climate change, as we heard uh, this week, and uh, the role that local authorities have in bringing about change. In January of uh, this year, the National Adaptation Framework was announced with €10 million provided over five five years uh, to establish four local authority regional climate action offices. Uh, The idea is uh, to implement national climate change policy. And we'll talk about this with Mark Deary now, who's a Green Party councillor. 
Good morning to you, Mark, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, there, there is a plan of, of sorts, uh, but it's very fluffy in uh, the language and aspirational in what it sets out in terms of what local authorities can do. But you were at a meeting of uh, the Nuclear Free Local Authorities Group, and you heard from Paul Price, who's an academic at Dublin City University, and he was saying that Ireland is 10 years behind other European countries and that it's time to stop talking. Yes, he said, we should be talking about this, but time to stop talking and to start acting and to do that now. Absolutely, Michael. The later we leave uh, the action, the more steep the decline will have to be in, in, in how we reduce our carbon emissions. Um, if we'd started this process in a serious way of hitting zero carbon by, uh, economy by 2050, if we'd started it in the year 2000 and given ourselves the 50 years a 3% reduction per annum would have got us there. Uh, a gentle enough glide path allowing for a, a transition that everybody could be, uh, could be um, part of without feeling huge levels of disruption. We've, we've, we've wasted the last 20 years effectively. Uh, we have a national plan with no targets. Absolutely shocking but true. Uh, that our national climate change strategy passed by the Dáil in 2015 contains no targets. Um, and that, and that uh, I suppose, has been the, the prompt to local government uh, and others to see this as an issue where woolly, woolly language will suffice. It is woolly language, though, it isn't is. it? There, there's no uh, real guidance for local authorities. Uh, it, nope. it talks about what could be done, how there's local knowledge, uh, how there's services provided by local uh, authorities, yeah. and... <clears throat> Uh, that those uh, who are, are in office in local authorities and local councils like yourself uh, have uh, an insight into the communities and would know where to start yourself. Yeah, it's waffle, absolute yeah. waffle. And, and without targets and without uh, penalties, um, and there are penalties about to be imposed in this country, we're not quite sure what they'll be now, but they'll be substantial. Without those targets and without penalties, it looks to me like we're going to continue to waffle our way into failure. Mm. Um, well, it could prove to be more in penalties than we pay, let's say, an increase seeing petrol and diesel, two or three cents a, a litre, or a fibre on a bag of coal. Yeah, but, well, y- but try to do that uh, in itself uh, and watch what happened in France happen uh, here. I couldn't agree more. And, and I, think, I think France has been a turning point in that discussion about how you price carbon. The idea now, and, and it has moved on very significantly um, in recent years from when I was involved in that uh, um, government that, were, that first priced carbon, um, is that carbon is priced, but that people receive it back as a dividend, uh, so that the price becomes um, a driver for change, uh, but that people ultimately are not out of pocket. I think that's a, that's that, that creates the incentive for change right down at grassroots level, but is also fair. And it is imperative, and Paul Price, um, who, who researches too for the EPA, made this point last week, that the, the, the speed of change that is now required could mean that fairness gets ditched if fairness gets ditched, people won't buy in. If people don't buy in, we are destined to, uh, to abject failure. So we have to marry rapid change, rapid change, mm. uh, with, with uh, a really radical commitment to fairness here. And, and we need to start thinking too, I believe, Michael, um, about how much uh, polluting space in the atmosphere each of us is entitled to. Um, there's talk in Poland this week of, of, of national quotas uh, which, which ultimately will feed down to individual quotas, I suspect, in the mm. decades ahead. And so high-energy intensive activities like flying roses from, from, from Kenya for Valentine's Day, 
or, or, or very high levels of frequent flying, uh, building third runways in Dublin Airport, for instance. All these things have well, to be called into it, question it, in the future. The, it's not the roses that you might give to somebody on Valentine's Day. It's uh, the cost of uh, the fuel uh, uh, that uh, the jet will use in getting them over. I, I, I pick it. I, maybe yeah. I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't target it on one issue because it seems like I'm blaming somebody. But I'm just picking it as a very, very oh, no. small example. Yeah. Of, of the kind of ridiculous economic model we have. But a, a lot of people will say, well, look, that's what aeroplanes do. Uh, and, OK, you might stop the roses, uh, but what's the point of, of me paying an extra fibre on a bag of coal when you've still got aeroplanes flying all around the world? You, uh, you're you're talk- right. This, this is the fairness mm. argument, Michael. Mm. How, uh, we, this, this has to be, be felt not just by, by people who are living ordinary lives, but by the, 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 the mega-rich who, who have these lifestyles. It is, it is a fact that that 10% of the world's, the top 10% of the world's population contributes uh, 50% of of the global emissions. They are taking Mm. up too much of what is a global resource, that is the ability to put carbon into the atmosphere. We need to start being equal and fair in that, as well Mm. as in the distribution of wealth and everything else that we talk about. I I suppose we need to start thinking about our atmosphere as a form of wealth and make sure that it's distributed fairly in the way that we speak about other resources. Uh, I'm sure you won't mind if I get right up your nose now for a second. Uh, The obvious solution in terms of energy is nuclear, isn't it? (laughs) Um, There's no question that once a nuclear power station is up and running that it's a low-carbon emitter. Um, For Ireland, and and we do import energy from the UK and Mm. some of that comes from nuclear power stations and that's, that's absolutely... That's absolutely the way it is. Uh, my argument would be that the resource we have here could make that flow of energy uh, uh, two-way and that we're, we're, we're providing other energy to the UK. Mm. The problem with nuclear, though, is that the urgency of response here, we're talking 20 to 30 years, mm. is about the time it takes to, start to build a nuclear power station, 20 to 30 years. That's the average. And that is, that is proven over and over again. In recent weeks, Hitachi have, have signalled their doubts about building the new Wilva plant mm. in Wales. Toshiba have actually pulled out of the Moorside facility in, in, in southern Scotland. Um, and of course, the cost, there's all, all of the concerns about nuclear waste and so on. And I don't need to... We don't have a regulatory framework. We don't, yeah, have, yeah, yeah. we don't have an inspectorate. Mm. We do, we're not part of Euratom. Yeah. We, the okay. IAEA are, are, are dead set against okay, you've, proliferation. You, you, you've won me over, right? Let's, okay. let, let, let's rule out nuclear. Try to get up your nose. Didn't work. Uh, you've won <laughs> that argument. No nuclear, right? So, so, so what do we do then? Do, do we stay with fossil fuels? No, uh, because that obviously is destroying... carbon. And this comes back to what Paul Price was saying, because it seems to me lose-lose. Nuclear or wind farms, uh, yeah, solar uh, energy, pylons. Yep, the, the, he did say that, the, that, that an inevitable part of this and a real challenge to leaders is that there will be industrialization of, um, of, of the countryside. He didn't say it would be prolific. He didn't, he didn't specify what it would be. But he did say that if we are to win this climate change battle and switch stop uh, burning fossil fuels by 2050, stop entirely, that everything we do that requires energy has to be based on electricity and that, that electricity has to be won from nature. So now, it can probably be done by then in, in less obtrusive ways. A lot of it can go offshore, I believe, uh, and, and uh, there, are, there are plans still for, for a project locally here in Dundalk Bay. Um, it, it needn't be as, as obtrusive as it is at present uh, and, and host communities really, really dislike it intensely, and I understand that. Mm. But there's no question that there's going to be a degradation of uh, the visual uh, part of our of our world, uh, so that the rest so that the rest of our, our our living lives can be lived in a tolerable way. 
And then he's saying, forget about your five cent on a litre of petrol, uh, drive electric cars, electrify everything, in fact. That's, that's what he says. Uh, that's, that's what he's saying. And, uh, like, he's only one scientist, but, mm. he, but, but I found him absolutely compelling last week. And against the backdrop of, of the inaction uh, that, that has given us only 30 years instead of 40, 50, 60 years to adapt, uh, I found the urgency of what he said uh, to be something that's worth relaying to you. And thank mm. you for giving me the chance to do it. Uh, I, I'm in politics. He's a, he's a scientist. He doesn't have to say these things mm. and then go out and get votes. I probably do, you know. Yep. So so it's not easy, and I appreciate no, it's not easy. Thing. That's why that's mm. why I constantly stress the need for fairness, engagement, inclusivity of people in this. And those debates around, for instance, uh, wind farms are going to be difficult. Well, it's winning the argument, uh, which you need to do as a politician if you're going to get votes or you won't be a politician, but uh, it's winning the argument if you're going to change the world and how we live in this world. And uh, maybe we better uh, whisper a little bit because uh, I'm not sure you'll win the next argument uh, with people just up the road from us uh, because uh, one of the things Paul Price is saying is get rid of cement. Um, well, well he, he, he refers to the need for, uh, for car- on, on specific high-intensive carbon emitters like, like, like cement works, that, that the cap- capture of carbon from those plants mm. should be considered and should be possible. And he's also saying that we, we should invest now in carbon capture because it is an easy early win, although very, very expensive. And but timber he, buildings. He, he does, yeah. He stresses the need for, for uh, I suppose that's got two... Two, two advantages. First of all, you, your, your land use strategy goes towards tree planting, which captures carbon. That carbon is not then burnt uh, as, as a fuel, wood fuel. It's captured in the framework of a house. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a different world. If this works, Michael, uh, and, and I, 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 I realise my tone is getting a bit anxious here, <laughs> but I have four young children, uh, 10 and under. If the world that they are going to live in is, is tolerable, it would be a very different world to the one I'm living in right now or that you and I grew up in, where, where, where we, we, we saw it as our absolute uh, right to adventure um, around the world mm. um, in, in, in ways that weren't sustainable. I think, and, I think, and, I think eat, and eat hamburgers. Uh, I, I mean, uh, or, or else we stop cows belching or have fewer cows belching. I, I think you can see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you know, it's a really good example, the fact that we didn't have... Uh, um, uh, target on our uh, in our in our climate action plan meant that the um, the food plan could go uh, could, could add three hundred thousand cattle to our national herd and nobody said boo there wasn't any restraint on that but these restraints uh, uh, are coming and uh, I'm just I'm just using this opportunity to mm. signal how radical the change needs to be um, and how local authorities need to be part of it at the moment they're taking their cue from a fairly supine message from central government. I do note, and I am delighted to see the change in tone from Richard Bruton since he took over mm. from Minister Nocton, who just wasn't prepared to lead on this issue at all. Richard Bruton is at least speaking in, in, in a more urgent tone and talking about setting real targets in the document the government okay. hoped to publish in February. He said that yesterday in Poland. It needs to be incredibly ambitious if we are to be part of the solution and not to continue to be part of and, the problem. And just very, very briefly, uh, I think I'm right in saying that we're not talking about the end of the world, but in 12 years from now, we're talking about the end of the world as we know it, if we don't act now. Um, yes, indeed, uh, the song springs to mind. Um, at the moment, we're on a trajectory for a 3.3% global temperature increase, which will lead, for instance, to the, uh, the land-based ice in Antarctica slipping into the sea and giving us massive sea level rises. 
Uh, we've just had an announcement here in Louth that that forty three million is to be spent on on seawall defences in Dundalk, but that's all, they are only being built for current sea levels. I mean, I've raised this many times with 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 officials in Irish Water and whoever else would listen that we need to be building for something much worse than that, uh, but we haven't. So 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 we're building a defence that will last for a while, but not for very long unless we get off the trajectory we are currently on, which is going to deliver 3.3 degrees of temperature warming. The, the safest, the best we can hope for, and, 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 and what scientists tell us is a safe-ish level, is 1.5 degrees. Uh, to do that, we need to drive carbon out of our, um, out of our economies okay. and out of the way we do virtually everything in future. Frightening, but very interesting nonetheless, and uh, I think you even included a, a nod to Michael Stipe. Uh, but we leave, we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us here at this morning Green Party Councillor Mark Dear. Michael Reed on LMFM Now let's talk about uh, the extensive prolonged and at times organised child sexual abuse uh, that occurred in Scouting Ireland at least that's the picture that's emerging according to the new chair of uh, the organisation's board Ashleen Kelly who told uh, members of this at a, a private meeting on foot of uh, the news uh, that the uh, number of victims who have come forward and indeed the number of alleged abusers has tripled. There is now 317 victims and 212 alleged child abusers. We're joined by Mary Flaherty who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer with CARI uh, which is uh, a children's organisation helping children who have been affected by child sexual abuse and a very good morning to you as always Mary and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. As we've been hearing today, the Irish Times is reporting that Scouting Ireland is planning to conduct an inquiry to identify if any of the members who are currently working in the organisation were involved in covering up uh, alleged abuses in the past. Uh, What do you make of that? Well, I think this story is um, becoming more serious every day. Um, we were concerned enough that, you know, one of these other great sporting institutions had been exposed as having a culture we're all too familiar with, where, where people, paedophiles were protected. But what's emerged in the last few days, that the level that there was organized cover-up and perhaps um, facilitation allowing these abusers to continue by moving them around the country, um, to continue to um, abuse other children in other areas. I think the the extent of this and the possible complicity of um, the organisation, uh, not just in ignoring it, but the suggestions that they that um, some people some people at the centre of the organisation may have been more uh, culpable and more directly involved. I think it's as serious as as it could be. Mm. Um, and we'll never really some... know the extent of it, will, it be, will we? Because a lot of it is historical going back uh, to the 1960s and before then, and uh, I'm yeah. sure some of those abused and their abusers are deceased. Indeed. And I think um, perhaps that is, if there's anything reassuring that a lot of the bulk of the cases do seem to be uh, historic, which would suggest that um, you know this important organisation, which has you know provided so much happiness training and development for children, that in recent years it would suggest that while I know there is at least one case that was more recent and indeed that may have triggered a lot of this uh, inquiry, that the bulk of the cases being discovered now are, are historic 
and um, came from a time when we were less aware and uh, less well protected in our organisations. So I think the um, the actions, um, I mean, it took a long time, obviously, for the uh, scouting organisation to take this serious enough. Um, it took kind of government pressure um, and that, that remains concerning. So I am impressed that the um, openness and seriousness with the new um, chief executive and board are uh, are tackling this, that they will follow through on it and will do everything they can to ensure that their organisation is a, a safe place for uh, parents and children to parents trust their children to and uh, children to feel safe in, in going to learn the many wonderful skills and have the many wonderful experiences they uh, do through scouting. Uh, so the, the, a lot the, at stake, a lot at stake. The numbers have, have uh, tripled. Uh, I think Ian Elliott, who's carrying out the audit, said uh, the numbers aren't particularly relevant. It's the hurt that each of the people have uh, endured and the offence that has been caused by individuals. Uh, but given what you know and the experience that you have in this field with other institutions, albeit the Catholic Church or elsewhere. What do you make of the figures and do you expect them to rise further? Well, from our experience, um, with that number of uh, you know perpetrators possibly identified, uh, we would imagine the number of victims would be far greater because from the earliest days of our studies, now while we can carry work with children, mm under 18 who have been abused um, currently and many of them it happens within their family and places like that that they trust um, neighbourhoods, friendships I suppose which the scouting is just an extension of um, it is rare that uh, one that a perpetrator will only abuse one child they tend to have an influence on a, on a much larger group in their in the lifetime of their activity and they are drawn to organisations like this where um, where they have access to children and access to children away from their parents in an unsupervised way on, you know, mm-hmm. camping events and, and other activities. Um, the consequences are can be very different for every child. Um, some of them can be extremely serious. Um, all of them are, are a serious abuse of trust and of, um, you know, will inevitably have an impact. On some, some children it can be a very very serious impact and for others they may be better able to manage it depending on their own personal resilience and support. I was glad to see the commitment that resources would be made available even at this late stage um, as far as scouting if they require that they sell some of their premises to ensure they have adequate resources because it's one of the tragic things we see of the children of today who who, who are waiting for our service for a year in Cary children who have been abused in the last two, three years. Um, the the access, the, the lack of counselling service and the uh, inability to access and the cost of counselling um, is quite significant. Okay. So and we really think that's an important element of the response of Scouting Ireland as may, well. Maybe before we finish up, Mary, I could uh, let people know that you have a, a helpline which is 1890-92-4567 if people wanted to speak to somebody in the Cary Foundation. That's 1890-92-4567. Uh, thank you for talking to us today Thanks and indeed all, all the time over the years uh, because I understand you're about to step down as uh, Chief Executive of Cary, uh, a That's role you've right. had since 
1997. You've been in public life uh, since 1981 when you were uh, elected a, a TD. Uh, and we wish you happiness in your retirement and congratulate you on uh, what has been a wonderful career. And thank you indeed, as I say, for joining us today and over the years. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you indeed. To you and your, your, your listeners. Thank you indeed. That's Mary Flaherty, the outgoing Chief Executive of CARI, who brings our programme to its conclusion today with uh, thanks uh, to Ross Leahy for doing everything. Uh, God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am at LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 